The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 121 An Enemy of Israel Goes Unpunished Benadad survived the initial battle against Israel in the foothills of Samaria. With his army depleted and dejected, the king returned to Damascus to regroup. Believing his advisors, Benadad was convinced that Israel only won the battle because it was fought on hilly terrain. Over the next few months, Benadad sent out messengers to different corners of his realm to call conscripts to make up his army. By the next spring, the army was as large and as well trained as the one that had unsuccessfully besieged Samaria, Israel's capital, the year before. At the same time, Ahab prepared his own fighting force as instructed by God's prophet. However, since he only had a few months to build up his force, Israel's military was still remarkably small and would be no match for the Syrians, at least in terms of numbers. Nevertheless, Ahab was obedient to the prophet and did his part to get ready for the oncoming battle. Early reports of the Syrian army marching south from Damascus reached Ahab in the springtime. Realizing this was the battle prophesied months earlier, Ahab exhibited a rare flash of courage and did not retreat into the city. Rather, he went out to meet the Syrian army in an open plain near the town of Aphek. Arriving on one side of the plain, Ahab looked into the distance to see well over 100,000 fighting men made up of infantry, cavalry, and charioteers. The Syrian army flooded into the plain and started to set up camp in full view of the minuscule Israelite opposition. In comparison to the size of the Syrian forces, the Israelites looked like two little flocks of baby goats. Witnessing the small Israelite army, the Syrian ranks bristled with confidence. Some of the generals wondered why they had brought such a large army. However, Benadad wasn't going to take any chances after his previous defeat and commanded that all his troops be ready for battle. Seeing the Syrian army make camp in the plain, Ahab commanded the Israelite army to do the same. When nightfall arrived, Ahab went to his tent to rest. But he couldn't sleep. He paced around his tent 
fully expecting a messenger to come at any time to announce the attack of the Syrian army. At last, a messenger did come, but it was with news Ahab was not expecting. I have a message from the eternal God of Israel, an unnamed prophet told the king. Your enemies have camped in the plain because they believe that the God of Israel only has power over the hilly regions around Samaria. They are here on the assumption that God will not be with you if the battle is on flat terrain. However, God has sent me to tell you he will bring you victory over this heathen nation. In doing so, God will prove that he rules over the hills, over the plains, and over all terrain of the earth. It doesn't matter where you fight your battles, the God of Israel is able to bring the victory. Encouraged by the prophet's message, Ahab slept soundly the rest of the night. The next day, Ahab relayed God's promise of deliverance to his officers and they spread the message throughout the camp. Relief spread over the camp of Israel. Many fighters had personally experienced God's deliverance the year before and were confident God would perform a similar miracle this time around. In the Syrian camp, however, the atmosphere was tense. While the Syrian conscripts were eager to fight, Benadad was cautious to not underestimate the Israelite forces. The memory of his humiliating defeat outside Samaria was too recent for him to be careless in this battle. Even though he had superior numbers, he took no unnecessary chances. For seven full days, Benadad's officers conducted many different fighting drills with the soldiers. Benadad also assembled his generals to strategize for every possible Israelite battle formation. Benadad's watchmen remained fully alert to any movement from the Israelites' camp in case they launched a surprise attack. Finally, after seven days of intense planning and preparation, Benadad felt ready for battle. For whatever reason, Ahab did not attack the Syrian army during this time, but waited for the week to expire. Then, a week after the prophet had brought his message, the two armies assembled for war. Both armies were a little timid. The Syrians were anxious because of Benadad's uncharacteristically cautious approach, while the Israelites were nervous because after years of paganism, they were not used to acting in faith. The Syrians outnumbered the Israelites 10 to 1. However, while the Israelites knew they did not have a superior force, they believed God was with them and that he would deliver them. As the armies drew closer on the grassy plain, a strange thing happened. 
The well-trained Syrian warriors were suddenly filled with crippling fear. Some dropped their weapons and shields. Others turned and ran. Israel was shocked by the Syrians' display and recognized that God was instilling this panic within them. When Ahab saw the Syrians stumbling into each other out of terror, he knew it was time to act. The Israelite soldiers took full advantage of the situation. They charged the Syrians and with swords drawn, quickly made short work of their enemy. By the end of the day, 100,000 Syrians were dead in the plain and the remainder fled for their lives. After having killed 100,000 men in one day with his tiny army, King Ahab had no doubt that God had provided the victory. Still, thousands of Syrians, including Benadad, were still alive and had fled into the nearby walled city of Aphek. Though wary, Ahab commanded the Israelite army to pursue the Syrians toward Aphek. After the last Syrian had made it into the city, Benadad commanded the local leader to close the city gates, hoping they would provide some safety from the Israelites. With the gates closed, Benadad quickly assembled his chief advisors inside one of the town's inns to discuss how they would survive the impending siege. But as they were beginning to discuss their strategy, they heard a loud rumble, followed by the shrieks of thousands of men. Running out of the inn's door to learn what happened, Benadad was engulfed by a massive cloud of dust, so great it partially blocked out the sun. An eerie silence surrounded him as he strained to see through the dust. As a breeze cleared away the dust, Benadad saw piles of rocky debris where the city wall once stood, and buried in all the rubble were fresh corpses of thousands of the Syrian soldiers that had just managed to escape death on the battlefield. Without this protective wall, and with his army decimated, Benadad panicked. He fled deeper into the middle of the city to hide. There, in a small room, with a few of his advisors, the Syrian king was trapped, unable to think of a way to escape. My lord the king, I have an idea, one of Benadad's men announced. We have heard that the house of Israel has merciful kings. Many other rulers were defeated by Israel and yet were allowed to live and go back to their people. If you allow it, let us dress in humble manner and put sackcloth around our bodies and a rope on our necks as a sign of submission. Then we will approach King Ahab on your behalf and request that he spare you. Benadad knew he didn't have many other options. He was already stuck in a city without a defensive wall and with no army to protect him. All right, the king responded. Do as you have suggested, and I shall remain here inside the city. With that, 
the Syrian servants quickly put on their humble attire and started toward the rubble where Afak's city wall once stood. While King Ahab and the Israelites carefully watched the city to see if any enemy fighters would try and escape, they observed a group of men climbing through the debris heading toward them. Since they were not dressed in normal military attire, but rather wore rags and had ropes around their necks, Ahab barked out orders to not harm them. Bring them to me, he commanded. We come with a message from the king of Syria, Benadad's servants said as they lay face down before Ahab. So he is still alive then, a surprised Ahab responded. Yes, he is alive, and he has sent us his servants to you, O mighty king of Israel, to humbly ask that you extend to him your mercy. He wants you to know that he realizes how foolish and unwise it was to try and make war with such a king as you and with such a nation whose God is so powerful. Will you be merciful upon us? A few seconds passed without a response from King Ahab. The Syrians began to quiver, fearing that they would be killed at any moment. Finally, Ahab broke the silence. Yes, I will extend you mercy, and I will also extend mercy upon your king, Benadad. I have no desire to see him dead. In fact, in a way, we are brothers because we live in adjoining nations. Astounded and relieved by Ahab's response, the servants arose from the ground and stood before the king of Israel, hardly believing what they had heard. Now go and fetch your king from Ephek, Ahab commanded. I wish to discuss certain things with him. The Syrians quickly bowed in obeisance as they backed away from the king. As soon as they were far enough away, they turned and quickly ran into the city center to find Benadad. We were right, the servants declared to Benadad as they entered the room where they had left him. I can't believe it, he proclaimed as he shook his head and rose to his feet. If I were in his position, he continued. I wouldn't have let us live. Great is the mercy, but also the foolishness of this king of Israel. The king of Syria followed his servants, walking slowly, with his face down toward the ground. Benadad approached Ahab, who was now standing upon his royal chariot. When they were but a few yards apart, Benadad bowed slowly before the king of Israel, waiting for Ahab's acceptance. Arise, Benadad, the king of Israel said as he reached forward with his right hand toward the Syrian. Please come and ride with me upon my chariot. We have much to discuss. I am terribly sorry, Benadad deceitfully proclaimed as he accepted Ahab's outstretched hand and climbed aboard the royal chariot. I should not have listened to my advisors in coming down to Israel to fight you. I can see now that your God is not only God of the hills, 
but that he is the god of the valleys and plains as well. I want to be fair to Israel, Benadad continued. When your father was the king, my father took many lands that belonged to Israel. As my gift to you, please accept these lands back under your control. Also, in Damascus, I will reserve streets and build royal palaces for you. So when you come to visit, you will be treated with all the respect you deserve. Ahab responded kindly to these words and agreed to the terms. If Ahab had been God's servant, he would not have accepted such a deal. Benadad and the rest of his advisors should have been given the most extreme punishment for their crimes. Instead, Ahab treated Israel's fiercest enemy as a friend. After they covenanted not to go to war with one another, King Benadad was given full pardon and allowed to return to Syria. While Ahab was en route to Samaria, God sent one of the students of the schools of the prophets to teach him a lesson. In an unusual occurrence, the student asked a stranger to smite him so he looked like he was part of the battle that had just taken place. While waiting for the king to pass by, the prophet smudged ashes over his face to disguise himself further. O king of Israel, I must speak with you, the disguised prophet demanded as King Ahab rode by upon his chariot. I was one of your servants fighting in the battle against the Syrians, the prophet recounted as Ahab told his horsemen to hold up. As the battle was finishing, a captive of the evil Syrians was taken and brought to me by one of your officers. I was told that I had to hold on to him until the officer returned, otherwise my life would be at stake. But alas, in the meantime, while I was busy tending my wounds, the Syrian escaped out of my hand. Will you be merciful for my neglect of duty? Of course not, a stern Ahab retorted as he glared toward the disguised prophet, annoyed that his victorious procession through Israel was being delayed. Out of your own mouth will you be judged, Ahab continued. You failed to keep the captive, and now your life or a silver fine will be exacted from you. After these words were uttered by the king of Israel, the suit-covered prophet quickly wiped his face and stood tall before the king. Immediately, Ahab realized this was one of the sons of the prophets. Thus says the God of Israel that brought the victory against the Syrians. Out of your own mouth shall you be judged, the prophet pronounced. Because you let King Benadad go instead of putting him to death as I had appointed, I will require your life for this. Ahab's jubilant spirit faded and was replaced by deep melancholy. He was miserable for the rest of his trip home, wondering how soon God was going to exact his punishment. It wasn't until he told his wife Jezebel 
about the prophet's prediction that he received a measure of comfort. Surely, you don't believe that prophet, do you? Jezebel told him. Everything is going to be okay. You just wait and see. Indeed, there was a period of quiet upon the land when armies did not attack Ahab's kingdom. Although Ahab could not fully remove the prophet's words from his mind, he went about his usual pursuits, striving to build his personal wealth. In doing so, Ahab sought to increase the size of his monumental gardens. Adjacent to Ahab's property was a lovely vineyard belonging to an Israelite named Naboth. One day, while the king was walking through his garden, he couldn't help but see the luscious grape clusters hanging from the vines next door. He coveted the verdant vineyard. At once, he hatched a plan to get the vineyard for himself. The following day, as Naboth was tending to his vineyard, he was summoned before the king. Naboth was long wary of the ungodly exploits of the king and his wife, so he was naturally a concerned that the king wanted to see him. Greetings, my neighbor, Ahab positively proclaimed to Naboth as he entered into the palace's royal reception room. I have a wonderful proposition for you, Ahab continued. You know that we have long been neighbors and have shared a common boundary. Surely, you have noticed that my luscious herb garden extends all the way up to your vineyard. Recently, as I was walking in my garden, I looked toward your vineyard and was thoroughly impressed with the quality of the vines and the grapes. You have done such a grand job maintaining and improving that vineyard that it almost looks like a natural extension of my royal herb garden. Naturally, I thought to myself, why? This vineyard should be part of the royal gardens. What do you say? Ahab concluded. Can I buy your land off you or even provide you with more land elsewhere so that your vineyard here is part of the glory of Israel? The wise Naboth saw right through Ahab's manipulative speech and calmly responded to the king. I understand your desire to extend your gardens into my property and I thank you for your compliments of my husbandry. However, God's law plainly states that this land is part of my ancestral heritage and that I am not allowed to sell it unless I am quite destitute, which I am not. If I turned over my inheritance to you for any price, both of us would be guilty in the eyes of God. Angry that his eloquent speech had not convinced Naboth to sell his vineyard, Ahab dismissed the farmer from his presence. The king retired to his room and wept upon his bed. 
Like a little child, Ahab moped and sought because he couldn't get what he wanted. Ahab was so moody and distraught that he even refused to eat any food. Soon, the palace servants reported the king's condition to Jezebel. The queen took time to visit Ahab. Ahab, why are you so downcast that you have refused to eat bread? Queen Jezebel asked. Looking up from his pillow, eyes red and moist, Ahab complained. I wanted Naboth's vineyard, and I brought him here to buy it from him, but he wouldn't let me. Jezebel rolled her eyes. What a silly reason for a king to be in tears, she thought. Oh, Ahab, you are the king of Israel, she decried. When the king wants something, he should take it. Don't worry, my poor husband. Let your heart be happy and start eating again. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. Ahab felt better, and Queen Jezebel returned to her room to devise a plan. To be continued in our next episode and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story. Find it under the Resources tab at pcg.church. Thank you.